Hello, this is Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. When Dr. Alan Sabrowski, the former head of strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College, decided to come out about 9-11, he did it on my radio show. That was 10 years ago. Now he's retiring from doing radio and video interviews, and he's announcing his retirement on this show as well. I'm not ready to retire yet, so please keep me in the game. Subscribe at Substack by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Hi, I'm sorry your call cannot be taken at this time. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here, and we're listening to Alan Sabrowski's voicemail message. Or we were, anyway. Uh, Hopefully we'll be listening to Dr. Alan Sabrowski himself pretty soon. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting out of a special uh, sort of studio deep in the woods of western Wisconsin, talking to the most interesting folks who have the most unorthodox, important views to help share in the free internet sphere, or what formerly was the free internet sphere. I'm not so sure it's so free anymore, but hey, it's free enough that Alan Sabrowski is still operating a Facebook page and taking on a long list of taboo issues there. He hasn't gotten 86 permanently from Facebook's uh, tavern of ruin yet, but he's working on it. He's doing all kinds of interesting stuff. Just gave a talk in Michigan, apparently, that somehow I missed, so I, I wasn't able to drive across Lake Michigan and see it or hear it. But uh, here he is, so we'll get to listen ourselves live and in person. Dr. Alan Sabrowski, the most censored man in America, here to talk about censorship. Hey, how's, how's it going, Alan? It's not too bad, Kevin. Actually, I'd like to, uh, to preface this with a, sort of a swan song comment. Um, the Michigan one was my last public presentation, and this is going to be my last interview. Uh, about 12 years ago, I was told, I was told that about 12 years ago, your endorsement of some of the things I had written and said, uh, really propelled me into a lot of attention. Quite a few people have said that, and I've been grateful to you for that. But I'm going to be 80 years old on Sunday, and I realized after the talk in Michigan, that I am absolutely slowing down. I can still write. I think I can still think, but if I didn't, I would. how would I know? And so I'm going to continue to write and continue to answer questions. But you, good sir, are going to have me for the last time on the air. Well, I'm very happy to have you, but uh, I will be very sad not to have you back because you've been one of the most interesting voices on so many different issues, starting with the 9-11, the big one, which is what got you and me both into trouble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, Alan, you sound pretty yeah, lucid, and trouble. you just drove all the way, I believe, from like Mississippi or something, all the way to Michigan and back to do a talk. So I, I don't know if you're 
necessarily, I don't think you have to retire yet, but if you want to, hey, <laughs> that's your choice. Yeah, uh, that's, I don't, I don't want to, but I also think that at this point, um, it's sort of like being a navigator on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, the country, the country is something between a sewer and a train wreck. And the thing that's, the thing that's bothered me most is that, I mean, you and I differ, while, while you and I differ on a number of issues, we, we have a very strong commitment to intellectual integrity and honesty. And what bothers me most is that younger people, whatever they verbally profess, do not give any evidence of having the courage to stand up for their words. They're great at talking. They're great at, at protesting one side or the other. Or if they're conservatives of wringing their hands, but they let 2020 go past them with all of the tragedy of 2020 and they did nothing. And I'm not sure we're, we're probably 20 years apart in age, but I'm not sure that there's much point now for you or I to be industrious tailors to uh, the naked emperor of, of public strength. It's not there. Mm. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know why it happened. Well, I actually suspect why it happened. But I look at this and I will tell you, Kevin, this is a, this is something I responded to uh, one of my my Facebook friends. Uh, she's Hungarian. I think she's in America now. Um, and she said, you know, that all Americans of European roots should abandon the country that has abandoned them and rejected them and go back and reclaim their roots. And I wrote to her. Were I younger, I would do it. So that's sort of like a, a European hijra or alia in the Muslim and Jewish terms. It, it is. It, it really is. But it's, you know, it's, you know, if no one will fight, you know, everyone, you know, people say, well, we have 400 million weapons and 18 million veterans. Well, that's fine. But tools are useless without the will to use them. And what strikes me most is that there is a dearth of courage, no matter what it is, whether it is to combat, you know, the CRT or the transgender agenda, or on your side, I think, to combat the Islamophobia bit which was equally irrelevant. I mean, equally, equally irrational, not irrelevant, but irrational. And there was no courage. 
you know, there were a few of us talking on, in the wings with a small audience. But the people who had the numbers and the tools to stand up and change things absolutely refused to do it. Period. So to what extent do you think that that is due to the kind of incomplete uh, destruction of the mainstream media's authority to create a consensus reality? That's We've been chipping away at that for years. And back a few years ago, you know, Ron Unz did that piece on how the, the media is the number one enemy. And so we should be you know, seeing it as the sort of the, the center of gravity against which we direct all of our, our military and strategic efforts. And I think we've come a long way there. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't fully stormed the citadel of the media and like kicked down all the stones and utterly, you know, trashed their headquarters. So we, we, have, we, have, we haven't even we haven't even chipped away at the at the drawbridge. And I think the 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 proof of that. And I don't mean to, to put be a wet blanket on this, but I'm I'm committed to reality, you know, whatever whatever comes down. We went through the went through the 20th anniversary of 9/11, um, and we've seen the absolute and utter futility of all of those efforts, including mine. I'm not I'm not throwing stones at other people, you know. I'm I'm taking stones myself. We have said a lot, we have written a lot, we've tried a lot, and we've had absolutely no effect, none of any consequence. Well, I, I don't know about that, Ellen. The, the, chipping, yeah. chipping at the periphery doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. There was not a single event, not a single member of Congress, not a single public official, 20 years after the event, when the when the absolute evidence that the U.S. government lied, that neocons within the government were complicit with Israel in the destruction of the towers and in the actual events of 9-11, not one would stand up. And I'll give you one more case of that. One Marine lieutenant colonel, this poor bastard, stood up and called for his leaders, political and military, to be held for account. And he was jailed, and he's out of jail, but he's going to be charged to special court-martial. Not one other officer in the Marine Corps, not one sergeant in the Marine Corps, has stood up and spoken on his behalf. Not one. That is a total abdication of moral courage no matter how you put it. I, I agree. And, when, yeah. and, you know, as a former Marine, I think if the Marine Corps is gone, I always saw it as the last repository of the the old America, you know, discipline. Like when I was when I was taught when I went into boot camp, Semper Fidelis is the motto, always faithful. Faithful to your God, whatever it is, faithful to your country, faithful to your core. And that right now is a piece of shit. And when the Marine Corps is gone, I'm sorry, the rest is gone. 
Yeah, I, I suppose I, I would be in total despair too, you know, if I were just like hanging my hat on nothing but, you know, America uh, for, you know, for right or wrong, um, you know. Uh, I've never done that. Yeah. I've never believed that. Right, right. But, but, but I can see the, the people, you know, if, if the state of the U.S. is kind of the big thing that matters to you, you know, I can see why you'd be really depressed right now. I mean, for, for me, uh, I am on the one hand. On the other hand, I recognize that there are these deep-seated problems in Western civilization and in the U.S., and they're going to have to get worse before they get better. So I'm not completely miserable about them obviously getting worse. And then also uh-huh. that's, 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 that's the, the fallacy. You think so? You, you think that you, they'll have to get worse before they get better? Well, I don't know if they have to, but just that's should, how it looks like it looks like it's, why it's they get better? inevitable. Yeah. And uh, well, you know what, what I mean why, is I, I, why they get better. Right. I, I would commend to you a book that I've I've read for, oh, I guess, half a century, once a year for half a century. I read it when I started graduate school at Michigan, and it was probably a, a, a useful uh, preparation for Michigan. Uh, it was called Eagle in the Snow by a British author named Wallace Breen, B-R-E-E-M. And... It's the story of the last Roman legion, the semi-apocryphal story, partly historical, partly not, of the last Roman legion to attempt to hold the Rhine frontier against the Germanic barbarians coming across in 405, 406 AD. And it's an interesting story because Bream is, is very, is a very astute historian and a very astute storyteller. And it, it discusses the corruption and collapse of Roman society, of Britain being overwhelmed by barbarians coming in as the Romans are trying to hold Gaul and the Rhine frontier against it. And there are more, more similarities, more analogies to our current situation than I, than I care to think about. But it's worth reading. You should try and you should look at it. It's uh, it's not a cheerful book. The Legion dies to a man. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. I mean, it, I frankly, Alan, though, I, I have a sneaking sympathy with the barbarians. I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of the Romans. And likewise, in the current, you know, uh, Western so-called civilization versus, let's say, the Islamic barbarians, I'm afraid I, I side with the barbarians there, too. And I'm actually cheered by the success of the Islamic resistance in Afghanistan and in Iraq or in, and Iran, I mean, all, all of these places where, you know, according to the prophecies, uh, the Khorasan region, which is basically Islamic Iran and now independent Islamic Afghanistan, is the place from which the armies will come that will liberate Jerusalem al-Quds. So the persistence and success of uh, Islam as the prime you know, social directive in those regions is profoundly heartening to me. And likewise, if I read this book, Breen's book, I'll probably cheer for the barbarians. So there you go. I mean, it it might be heartening to you, but if you, if you think they're, they're going to unearth the Israelis, I think you're kidding yourself. And you know, I'm not a fan of the Israelis. You you understand that. Well, yeah, but but, you know, Allah's will will be done. I think one way or another. I think, I think the Israelis would cheerfully nuke them and not, not lose a second sleep over it. And the United States and other countries would do nothing. 
Yeah, that's why it's not going to happen uh, today or tomorrow or probably even this year or next year, or maybe not even 10 years from now, but I can definitely see it and kind of sense it coming. Uh, but in any, in any case, the, you know, the U.S., with all of its promise, uh, its philosophy of enlightenment liberalism and so on, obviously is pretty profoundly decadent. And in the second hour, Peter Simpson, the author of Political Illiberalism, is coming on. And I think he and I agree that there are some built-in flaws to the Enlightenment liberal philosophy that the U.S. is based on, and it worked, you know, it, and it, it also had some very some strong some strengths, and it grew, it was vigorous, and it flowered and stuff, and now it's gone to seed. Uh, it seems to me. So I, I think that's, that's just that's the way a, of the world. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Anyway, that was my introduction. What do you wish to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just uh, you know, now that we're talking about the decadence of our Enlightenment liberalism-based uh, country, uh, whatever happened to free speech? I mean, the whole point of of liberalism is to sort of enshrine these values of individual freedom, and the most important ones are freedom of conscience, uh, the freedom of the intellect to try to find the truth and to speak and seek and speak the truth in public fora. And, you know, I, I got kicked out of university for looking for the truth about 9-11, and now people are getting booted off the Internet left and right for trying to find the truth about a long list of issues, very issues that you've been posting about on Facebook, which uh, fortunately haven't gotten you kicked off yet. But do you see this uh, turn away from Internet free speech that happened about five years ago as symptomatic of uh, the decadence that's kind of you know, this barbarian decadence that's overrunning what used to be enlightenment liberal civilization. It's, it's not, no, it's not so much barbarian decadence. It's uh, a dedicated Jewish authoritarianism. I think the first, the first chip in the edifice of free speech in Europe and in America came when it became either illegal or impossible to critique the myth of the Holocaust. You know, I don't think there's ever been, been a hoax so profoundly embedded that, and, and so it's not impervious to criticism. It's that it's not possible to criticize it. I talked about this in Michigan a couple of days ago. I said, you know, if you look at it, if you just take a look at it, there is so much wrong with it. I mean, talk about a, a, a false image that has so many flaws, structural, physical and logical, if anyone ever looked at it hard, the thing would collapse, but we're not allowed to look at it. You know, the Washington that, Post recently uh, had a quiz, which of the, these conspiracy theories are true? And they listed a long list of so-called conspiracy theories, and then they told us which ones they think are true and which ones they think are false. And I think they were batting well under 500, <laughs> but one of, <laughs> one of them was, was the Holocaust. And, and you were supposed to pick true or false. Uh, the uh, conventional Holocaust story of six million vis victims in gas chambers has been exaggerated. And they said that was false. It hasn't been exaggerated at all. <laughs> I know. I know. And, you know, as, you know, that is 
as I mentioned a couple of days ago, that single hoax, that single myth gives the people who are driving all the rest of these isms uh, a moral imperviousness to criticism. And as long as they maintain that myth, as long as they are allowed to keep that hoax inviolate, nothing else that they do can really be criticized, criticized effectively. Now, now wait, wait a minute, Alan, why is that? Because with, let's say, you know, with 9-11, we had a pretty vigorous 9-11 truth movement going there for a while, and it's still, you know, it's still uh, a force out there. The, and... the, legal, the, legal, the legal challenge has collapsed. And as I said uh, a few minutes ago, not a single major person stood up and critiqued the official story on the 20th anniversary. Not one. Right. Not but what, what does that have to do with the Holocaust? The, most of the people involved in the 9-11 truth issue were not really talking about the Holocaust. Most of them don't even know much about it, nor no, would they no, question it. No, but all of these things go back to Israel. 9-11 goes back to Israel. It goes back to the mostly Jewish neocons in the U.S. government. And you can't even talk about them. You can't even criticize them because that's anti-Semitism. And that goes back to the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, you know, definition of anti-Semitism, which is any criticism of Israel or of Jews who support Israel is anti-Semitism. And that's the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's sustained, as long as that is retained, you cannot attack the people who did 9-11. You can't even attack the people who support 9-11. I wonder if the 9-11 mythmakers, people like Philip Zelico, the sole author pretty much of the 9-11 Commission report novel, who describes himself, he's a history professor, but he calls himself a specialist in the creation and maintenance of public myths, such as, he says, the myth of Pearl, the Pearl Harbor Japanese dastardly surprise attack that was so completely unexpected. And he says that these myths are popular beliefs about history that may or may not be true. But they are widely believed to be true, and by being believed to be true, they exert a powerful force on the unfolding of history. And that's what he's interested in. Well, do you think that Zelico himself knows that, for instance, what the establishment narrative thinks to be true about the Holocaust is not? In other words, do you think Zelico actually is conscious of the issue of the Holocaust being one of the public myths that he is interested in manipulating to uh, propagandize the public? Of course. So he's he's not a complete idiot then. <laughs> of course, none of these people are idiots. I mean, I I would love before I die, which may be sooner than I care to think about, I would love to meet the person fifty odd years ago who came up with the idea with a strategy for using this, for taking control. Whoever it was was a master strategist, really. Well, who, who was it? The, 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 path, the path to power has been absolutely impeccably executed. 
Do you, do you remember the name of the Israeli strategist that Christopher Bolin cited as having back in the 1970s, I think, predicted? Edward Lutwak. Was it, well, I'm not sure it was Lutwak, the one I'm thinking of. The one I'm thinking of is the one who said that radical Muslim terrorists are going to destroy the tallest building in America because it's a phallic symbol. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that wasn't Lutwak. But Lut- Lut- I, know, I know it wasn't yeah. Lutwak, but yeah. I know who you mean. Yeah. Um, name escapes me, but I know who you mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. So so there are a number of people who, who said things. Like, and, of course, Lutwak wrote Coup d'etat, a practical handbook, which came oh, out. that's in, a think, good book. That's yeah, a nice book. 1968, no. which uh, Blonde, uh, this Italian journalist, uh, wrote mm-hmm. a great piece showing how Coup d'etat, a practical handbook by Lutwak, is a step-by-step recipe for doing 9-11. And uh, I'm sure you probably encountered Lutbeck's book um, long ago, back in your your college days. I know, I know, I know Lutbeck actually. You know him personally, really? Yeah. Huh? yeah. Did, did he, you? He was at CSIS. Huh. Well, he doesn't. I don't know him, but he knows who I am because at one point I think I mentioned that coup d'état was a step-by-step guide to 9/11 in a, in a mainstream media interview. So the interviewer, I think, it was the Associated Press, called up Lutvac for get his commentary, and he said, uh, "You know, wh- whoever said that, or whoever blames me for for nine eleven, uh, doesn't deserve to be even like cleaning the toilets at the University of Wisconsin." <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Lutvac made a an interesting comment. This has uh, nothing to do with nine eleven, but he was giving a talk at CSIS and. Uh, this is back in the 80s. And he was talking about the Bundeswehr. And he said, you know, the West Germans have done everything they can to de-Germanize their army. They've talked about inner leadership and social responsibility and all the rest of that. He said they can't help themselves. They've got a dozen first class divisions, you know, no matter what they do. And everyone laughed, including the Germans who were there. Uh, well, Lovelock's a very bright guy. The first book of his I read was The Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire. And it was really interesting. Some of the reviews were good. Some of them were not good. But it was a really interesting book, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was people who were uh, bright, although maybe uh, moral idiots, uh, who would come up with something like 9-11. But... I, I guess it, it solved some you know, some Israeli problems in the short and medium terms. It certainly didn't help the U.S. You know, geostrategically. So whatever Americans went along with 9-11 thinking it was going to bring them a new American century, uh, they weren't so bright. Well, it sh- the the PNAC paper should have been described uh, a new, new Israeli century because that's what it was. And since they wrote it for Netanyahu in his first time as prime minister, that's not surprising. But, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that uh, that the, the net effect of of 9-11 and the American response to it was a classic case of what's been called imperial overreach. Where a country, often for the best of reasons, sometimes for the worst of reasons, tries to do more then its military and economic capability can do. Because as we went around beating up the, the Middle East militarily, 
at home, the national debt was increasing. Social instability was increasing. You know, it was it was like the Roman Empire in its in its fourth and fifth century. The legions were still strong, and the the country at at home was rotting away. And that's us. Mm-hmm. The legions are still very strong. The military is still very strong, at least until until uh, Emma's two mothers take over. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this. There was a an interesting interesting video which which had actually three recruiting videos, uh, China's, Russia's, and America's, the three armies. You know, and the Chinese and the Russians, I mean, recruiting videos are propaganda. They all are, but they're directed at their own people, you know, to get their own people to come in the military and to be supportive of it. And here's the Russian and Chinese, you know, tough as nails, pounding their way through, and then the American video. It begins with the story of Emma, a girl in California raised by two moms. And that's yeah, the I, I did see that. Oh, God. It didn't know. make me want to rush I, out I, and I join tried, the military, I, but I, I, I'm a little I, old for that anyway. Pardon me? It didn't make me want to rush out and join the military, but I'm, I'm a little old for that anyway, so. Oh, no, no. You could be, you could be used to clear minefields. <laughs> <laughs> You're never too old to find minefields, huh? So I, I, I looked at that video and I thought, you know, I want to vomit. But very seriously, the um, not not a week after that, the the Marine Corps Gazette, which is the official journal of the of the Marine Corps, had an article by two generals, a lieutenant general, a brigadier general, on why. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are essential for our war fighting. I kid you not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they're probably going to march into battle with a whole squadron of diversity officers, sort of like the universities uh, are doing it now. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I just, I just, you know. Yeah. Well, I, you, I you say the military is still strong, but it didn't really do that well against the barbarians in Iraq and Afghanistan, did it? Uh, It's strong technologically, but it needs something to use the technology against. But when it comes to the human element, that's a different dimension. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the Afghans and the Vietnamese both defeated us in the wars simply because they were willing to die more and longer than we were. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we advertised our um, cowardly uh, fear of fighting on a level playing field and being willing to die by turning it into a big you know drone warfare video game where these guys blow up wedding parties with their video game consoles and they call that combat. I mean, that's so disgusting and cowardly and chicken shit that no wonder... If, you know, if I were, if I were an Afghan or an Iraqi or even an American like I am, I'm ready to kill those people. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, if I, if I didn't have free speech right now, I would be going to some drone base and machine gunning the fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, te- the technology, the drone technology isn't bad, but the problem with it is that when technology becomes a substitute for courage, 
I mean, you can have, you can, there's no, no theoretical reason why you can't have courage and technological sophistication as the right hand and the left hand of a military establishment. But you've got to have the right hand of courage to be willing to go out there in the mud and the blood while your left hand of technology gives you the ability to to minimize your own casualties, which is really what it should do. You know, if you could, if you can hit the enemy before they hit you, then the people you've got on the ground in the mud aren't going to suffer as much and are going to have fewer losses and there are going to be more of them coming home alive, which is which is a good thing. Well, that's the theory. But if 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 you're running all of this, you know, drone warfare garbage, if the enemy looks at you as a bunch of cowards who are afraid to fight and die and are using this technology, well, they can they look don't... at you that way. But if you aren't, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we are. Mm-hmm. They don't have we don't have to be. We don't have to be that. But we are. And we have it's it's one of the one of the classic problems associated with letting civilians, especially politicians who know absolutely nothing about the military and care less, be the ones who define military policy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there, yeah. there, there was there was a there was a really neat book. It's about oh seventy years old, sixty seventy years old. Um, called this kind of war, and it's about Korea. It is by a retired lieutenant colonel in the army. His name was was Fehrenbach, F E H R E N B A C H, T R Fehrenbach, and he talks about the the U.S. Army after World War II became very much like the U.S. military today. We wanted to make it like our society. We wanted to reduce the stress on the soldiers. We reduced the authority of officers and sergeants. And when they went into battle against the uh, the peasants of the North Korean People's Army, the peasants of the North Korean People's Army kicked their ass. And he says, you know, for, for for wars, you need legions. And Americans don't like legions. But that's what you need. And that's the same thing today. Whatever we do as a country, whatever whatever this country does, if it if it survives, and I'm not sure it's going to survive. I I truly think of it as a train wreck waiting to happen, although that's not probably fair to train wrecks. Um, it's got to have legions and not worry about diversity, equity, inclusion or any of that social bullshit that has no value whatsoever on the battlefield. The battlefield doesn't the battlefield doesn't care about your social preferences. It doesn't care about diversity. It doesn't care about equity. It doesn't care about inclusion. It doesn't care about the number of transgender, bisexual, Jewish surnamed, Spanish people you have running your military. It cares about how well you fight. Period. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, that, that insane attitude with the recruiting video uh, for the, the soldier with two moms or whatever, that that's the same attitude, it seems to me, that leads to 
the over-reliance on technology and the complete ignorance of uh, you know, winning hearts and minds through being, uh, you know, meeting the people of the country you're trying to occupy as fellow human beings on an equal level where you're exposing yourself to, to danger as well as to the possibility of success. Instead, these people are just a bunch of pussies that, you know, are just hiding uh, behind these walls of illusion and that, you know, I think that there, there is some kind of weird, uh, lack of contact with reality in, uh, in the culture in general and maybe this, this new military ethos that's, but, but so getting, getting to, to the, you know, the future of the American legions, as it were, and I'm not talking about the post, uh, down here in <laughs> Lone Rock, Wisconsin, where the veterans get together and talk, you know, the last surviving Korean veteran will tell you some amazing stories, but, you know, the legions that are going to be helping the Taiwanese, uh, defend their island against the uh, Chinese, um, what's with all this saber rattling with China? And do you think that this military that failed so abysmally in Iraq and especially Afghanistan has any chance at all of standing up uh, to China and fighting for Taiwan? None. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. I don't, and I don't believe that the Taiwanese trust the United States to do anything for it whatsoever. You know, the, the thing is, this is there's a lot of posturing and that that's always the case in international politics. But I think that the Chinese are absolutely convinced that they are the ascendant power. And I believe they're correct. Um, we are not only declining but you recall before the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was was described as the sick man of Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, we're the sick man of the world. Or the sick thing of the world. I don't think sick man would be appropriate. We're the sick thing of the world. Um, Russia. The former communist countries of Eastern Europe, particularly the Visegrad group. Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia. They'll probably be the last repository of Western civilization. So that's where we should be making our, our, uh, our white guy hijras and alias. I don't, I don't, it's, it's not so much, it's not, not a racial thing. I think it's a cultural thing. Um, the, I don't think we really appreciate that that the the people coming up on our side, the people pushing critical race theory and the rest of this, and their and the great replacement in Europe and the United States, I don't think we really appreciate that they intend to erase our culture and our history. Well, what it's are they going to replace function, it? With? Not just functional migration. You know, I mean, if it were up to me. I would bring as many Asians and Arabs into this country as possible to offset what we're getting from from Africa and Central America. Hmm. Because as as cultures and civilizations, there's much more community of interest among the Arab civilizations, the European civilizations and the Asian civilizations than there is against about four others. Well, that, and yeah. 
but we're not doing that. But I, I think that we really need to understand that younger people really need to understand that that what we're dealing with within the United States and to a slightly lesser extent in, in Western Europe is a movement to erase our culture and our history. It's not just a function of a, of a political change or a change of political parties. It's something much more fundamental. And I can only I can only think of one one precedent. Well, actually, two precedents in history. One is when the Romans decided to erase Carthage. They did. They erased not only the city and its people, they erased its culture, its history, its language. Nothing survived. We know nothing of Carthage except what the Romans have told us. There was that the erasure was that complete. And the second, which was not quite as complete, was when the early Christian church decided to erase paganism. And they actively worked to do that. And so much of the uh, the earlier religions, the, the, the ancient religions of the of the ancient world, of the classical world, of their literature, of their philosophy, of their poetry, was erased, deliberately erased, so that we have just fragments today of what was known 2,000 years ago. Okay, so, so the people doing the erasing in both of these cases had their own culture uh, to supplant the erased culture with. There was the Roman culture that got rid of Carthage. There was the Christian culture that got rid of paganism. So who is it that's erasing our culture and history now? Well, they think they're Marxists. And I, I, I emphasize by saying they think they are. Um, and a few and a few of them are a very small fraction of them are. And I think that to the to the greatest extent, they believe that they're out of the chaos that comes from the collapse of of the West. You know, Oswald Spengler's Untergang des Abendlandes. Um, that they'll be able to build a true Marxist society. They're wrong. They won't. All they'll have is chaos. But I think I believe they, th they think they're Marxists, at least on that side. Um, I don't I don't see any sort of a sustainable, coherent political ideology there. They have a great deal of anger. They have a great deal of outrage. They have a great deal of emotion. They're perfectly capable of tearing down. But I haven't seen any indication that they have anything on which to build. Well, they remind me a little bit of the, the nihilists of 19th century Russia that Dostoevsky and others wrote about. Uh, and Turgenev, of course, uh, you know, the, the nihilists were very much uh, centered on tearing everything down and they didn't even bother to say they had anything to replace it with. I don't know if these people you're talking about are really Marxist, though. Because the, you know, the Marxism is really about empowering 
the working class. And uh, what we've seen is this increasing inequality uh, with uh, a more and more powerful corporate oligarchy that is actually in bed with these, the people you're calling Marxists and these, these cultural Marxists or whatever you want to call them, the people who are diverting the attention of working people away from the fact that they're getting robbed and that the oligarchs are getting richer all the time and they're not keeping up. And then they're being told to worry about, uh, about gender bending and critical race, this and that and whatever. Uh, it seems to me that that's not, that's actually not really Marxism in a way. It's actually opposed to real Marxism. It's a kind of a, uh, a, a blowing smoke over, over real issues on behalf of uh, pushback against the kind of more uh, Marxist thought that was dominant uh, a couple of generations ago when there were structures that were put in place to reduce inequality in order so that the West wouldn't be crushed by the Soviet Union with its thorough devotion to extreme Marxism. The West then said, well, we're going to you know, create all these structures uh, to maintain social equality. And a lot of that does, of course, go to Marxian thought, right? But then that all got, got trashed. And who trashed it? It was these uh, pet ideologists of the oligarchs, the uh, diversity gender bender crew. So I'd say those people are anti-Marxist. They're not Marxist. Okay, I agree. I agree. I agree completely. I agree. That's not a question at all. Um, I'm not really sure how we've described them. But I know I know the net effect is going to be catastrophic. It's because it's, you know, it's the sort of thing that, you know, I described it once to someone. I said it's when you look when you look at the people and at the movements that are associated with the Antifa, BLM, CRT crew, you know, it's sort of like something the Mad Hatter would have created on a on an off day. Uh, they have everything to be against and nothing to be for, really for in a in a substantive structural way. And I think a, a dedicated Marxist would look at them and say, you've got to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't um, think the Marxists who actually ran reasonably stable and semi-successful Marxist states, people like Fidel Castro and so on, I don't, I don't think they were really encouraging the uh, the gender bender diversity crew in their countries too much. No, no, that, that in fact I understand that uh, that in China it's not exactly a popular thing to be. Mm-hmm. And in North Korea it's actually fatal. Yeah, well, the the communists are they're they're dedicated to the working class, the working people, and whatever you want to say about China, it does seem to me that their communist party has become a very successful Mandarin elite that does make a certain effort to try to defend their so-called national interest, which now means not just the interest of the super rich people in China, like it used to. Now it means the interest of the normal people in China. So, Hey, two cheers for communism. Well, you know, a better country to look at than China, and that is Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really even more successfully than China. I think from what I've seen from the outside, has managed to work an amalgam of state control by the party and a remarkable amount of decentralization and economic initiative within the society. And it's really interesting. You look at that today. I mean, Ho Chi Minh and Mao Zedong 
would both roll over in their graves several times if they saw Vietnam and China today. But they've been very successful societies. They worked it out. Well, the, prop, and, the Western uh, propaganda now is saying that China in particular is turning back and becoming more communist. And what does that mean? Well, they're going to keep tabs on their billionaires. They're not going to let their billionaires run riot. They're not going to sell off all their assets to the international. Well, they, they, did, they, they executed one billionaire a couple of years ago. Yeah, we we can't even seem to find them here, much less I mean, jail you, them. Can you imagine executing a billionaire in the United States? <laughs> I can imagine it, but <laughs> I, I mean, I could, but can you imagine it happening? Well, that's a different question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kevin, Kevin, what do what what do you consider to be the the most important issue for the United States in the next year? <laughs> well, that that narrows things down because I have this tendency to wax eloquent on these really big kinds of, you know, vague issues like, uh, you know, we need a spiritual awakening and we, you know, we need to understand that the whole founding, you know, secular materialist progressivist philosophy of our enlightenment forebears actually was wrong. We need to completely throw that out and come up with something totally different, <laughs> things like that. I don't think that's going to happen within the next year. <laughs> so I, I would question the possibility of that. Yes. So what do you consider to be, the most issue. Let's not, let's not put it differently. What issue would you like to address the most attention to over the next year? You know, I, I think that it's it's got to be what we frame this interview as, which is the uh, issue of free speech and censorship, because I've noticed this complete collapse of Internet free speech in the past five years or so. You know, up until 2014, 15, 16, it was just taken for granted that all internet platforms are, have to be neutral fora because if the platform decided to regulate what you put up on their platform in any way, other than preventing illegal, non-constitutionally protected speech, that is crimes, uh, then they would lose their protection under section 230 of the Communications Decency yeah. Act. And they would go out of business immediately. Um, so that was the assumption right up until just maybe five, six, seven years ago. And then suddenly all these think tanks and media propaganda started beating up on that interpretation of Section 230 and saying that, hey, it's actually some censorship is okay. We've got all these terrible problems like Trump, you know, and things like that. Our society will fall apart if we don't censor the hell out of the Internet. So let's let's do it. And they've been doing it worse. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And if it, if free speech on the Internet becomes constrained very much more than it is now, a heck of a lot of people are going to have to turn to violence because what else can they do? Well, I don't see it having taken quite that long back. It started, I think, basically in um, I think 2018 was when the first person was censored. Um, that was Alex Jones. Mm hmm. Am I wrong on that? I think no, I think you may be thoughts. right, but, but, but the propaganda against Section 230 and saying that we need to let right. these... Right, begin before that. Yeah, right, yeah, I, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. I, I would agree that I think that, you know, the there are a number of people I know, quote-unquote, no, I've never met them personally, but we talk on the Internet from different countries that say, you know, we don't have a First Amendment, and that's the most important thing you have. And once once people start chipping away at that in any part of it, you know, free speech, free press, free religion, whatever it is, 
that that is essentially undermining the body politic, the, base, the basis of your society. But I think it began before the censorship in social media. It began when the, the mainstream media itself ceased to be a relatively open and competitive forum, which is, was 30, 40 years ago, and became effectively the, the propaganda arm of one party. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it took longer for the social media to fall down that rabbit hole. But with the mainstream media going, that would matter. I remember, and I don't think you would, you're just enough younger, you might not, that in in the early 70s, late 60s and early 70s, There are a number of shows on on television, news shows, and there is there and each of them would have a period at the end of their their broadcast at night when there would be say there would be an opinion section and it would be clearly labeled there'd be the words opinion at the top of the screen or the bottom of the screen. And Chet Hunkley and Huntley and David Brinkley were the most most uh, I think strict about this, and they made it very clear this was opinion. And before then, that they would actually talk about factual news on both sides. Now there was always a slight slant to one way or the other, depending on the network. But you would all depending on the emphasis they gave, but you would always get news and then you would have a piece set aside opinion that ended sometime in the 80s mm-hmm. that that dichotomy and, and it's it's gotten vastly worse just over the past few years oh that, and it's gotten vastly worse in the last 20 years even even at 911 there were newscasters who talked about 911 like CNN's Pentagon correspondent talking to his anchor back in Atlanta and saying, I'm here in the Pentagon and there's nothing, there's no wreckage. Never happened today. Never happened today. Mm-hmm. Well, some of that, of course. Ago, yeah. 20 years ago, there were still vestiges of the earlier attention to detail and the earlier belief that there should be some at least some honesty in news reporting. These days, it's all a production. It's Hollywood moved to New York in the New York studios. Mm-hmm. And I think that while you're correct, that that the death, or at least, well, not quite dead yet, but the the large, largely complete demise of free speech on the social media is a, is a horrible thing and makes it very difficult for us to to work our way out of it. That the end of the the dichotomy between news and opinion in the mainstream media preceded that and made it almost inevitable. Well, that that's a pretty interesting analysis. I think you're right, and I think 9/11 was a big factor, as you kind of implied there. And we could talk a lot more about that, but. 
we're pretty much at the end of the show and you're saying you're retiring from public discourse except for your your facebook posts will you be writing anything uh i've got i've got three articles in in work right now and if i stop talking i'll actually finish them there you go i'm going to be writing i'm going to be writing a great deal i'll do facebook posts but uh this good sir avi akevali Okay, well, it's been great talking with you, and I hope to continue to chat with you privately now and again because uh, you're one of the, the wise heads of what's left of this crazy country. Thank you so much, Dr. Alan Sabrowski. Uh, it's been great, as always. Take care, and God bless. Take care, Kevin. Bye-bye.